Truth Plus Media. Are you ready for today's English lesson? Do you know who scored 2,000 points in eight consecutive seasons? Do you know who scored the most points in the 1980s? Who had one of the smoothest jump shots ever? It was this guy, Mr. Silky Smooth, Mr. Nugget, Alex English. The theory is no secret. Hang loose and let the players play. In our system, you get a lot of freedom. So if you have ability, you get to do whatever you want. English. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> 35 for Alex English. He makes it look so easy. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Forgotten Seasons. I am your host, Dylan Dreyfus. Today, we are going to be going back to 1985 and reliving the Denver Nuggets season with the leading scorer in Nuggets franchise history, the leading scorer of the 80s, eight-time All-Star, a Hall of Famer, the man of unbalanced grace, Alex English. Alex scored 28 points per game this year and led the Nuggets to 52 wins. The team put up 120 points per game, which was actually low for their standards. They made the conference finals, but lost to Magic and Kareem and the Lakers in five games. Uh, this was a really good one. I'm excited to dive into the history of an 80s team that isn't the Celtics and the Lakers because that seems to be the only two teams that get talked about from the decade now. Um, but there's so much to learn. This Nuggets team was amazing. They were probably the most high-powered offense in NBA history in the decade. Um, Alex and I talk about a lot. We go into what life was like as a player back then. Uh, cigarette smoke filled commercial flights in between back to backs. We talk about the small forwards in the league, sort of the golden age with Larry Bird, Julius Irving, Dominique, George Gervin. And of course, we get all into this Nuggets team, Fat Lever, Dan Issel, Doug Moe, and a lot more. So enjoy. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. And Forgotten Seasons with Alex English in the 1985 Nuggets begins now. Welcome, everybody, to Forgotten Seasons. Welcome to Alex English. We have the leading scorer of the 80s, the number 20 on the all-time scoring list, eight-time All-Star leading scorer in Nuggets history, our first Hall of Fame guest on Forgotten Seasons. So, Alex, welcome. Thank you for coming in. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, glad to be here. Uh, glad that somebody is recording and recognizing those years. So I want you to try and go back to 1984, 1985 in your mind. This is going to be the season that we're going to be reliving today. When you travel back, you know, a little bit over 30 years, what is Denver in 1985 like? What is the energy like in the city? Well, the city back then was uh, becoming a city. It was uh, still a uh, Midwestern kind of a cowboy type place. You know, the rodeo was one of the popular, most popular things there. But it was also a city, uh, a big city emerging from all of that. And then for you, so one of the best scorers of all time, for the young people that might not be too familiar with your game, how would you describe Alex English, a prime Alex English on the court? Uh, well, it's hard, hard to describe uh, hard to describe for people to understand, but for me, you know, looking from inside me, it was just a, a fun-loving, smooth flow. 
of a game. You know, I tried to, uh, I, I was like, a, I, I envisioned myself as an entertainer, like a dancer out on the floor. And, and uh, you know, I put that kind of effort into every game. Every game was like a, a new adventure for me. You know, I, I didn't just say, well, it's, it's just a blase, blah, you just got to go play. For me, it was an adventure because every time I went out on the floor, it was going to be something new, something different. And, you know, you can't, there's no way to play a game the same way every time. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I loved it. And it was my art, my art form. That, that, is, that is amazing. And for those who don't know, the Nuggets teams led by Alex and his coach, Doug Moe, one of the most high-powered offenses in NBA history, probably the most high-powered offense. Um, this season in 1984, they averaged 120 points per game. And in that stretch in the 80s, that was actually low for them, believe it or not. So yeah. stemming from that offense was your coach, Doug Moe, uh, a real interesting character in NBA history. He comes from an ABA background, um, and he had this famous heralded offense. Uh, he was on the record saying he didn't like to draw up plays. Uh, he did not like to watch a game film. So try and paint the picture of who Doug Moe was as a coach and as a person. As a coach, he was, uh, he, he was kind of not chaotic. You know, you know, people always said that we played in a chaotic way, but uh, that we played organized chaos. But that was not the way we played. We were very organized, and we had lots of rules in our, in our offense. And Doug was uh, a coach that, as long as you could follow the rules of the offense and play like he wanted us to play, he was okay. Uh, during the game, he was very frenzied, and he he'd be like a different person. He would uh, you know curse you out, he'd be crazy, he'd call you. I don't know if he ever called anybody an MF, but he would he would you know he had a very uh, colorful catalog of words. And, you know, I, I, just like the other guys, I got a piece of it just like they did. But it was something we all understood that once the game was over, he was going to go back to being Doug Moe, the, the, the coach who uh, you enjoyed playing for. Um, I, I think that what he gave us was an offense that everybody felt good about it. And everybody, if you had the opportunity, everybody got a chance to score. And in basketball, everybody wants to score. You know, the dirty work, the defense, was something that defensive players did. And we had we had defensive players. And, you know, we all tried to play, you know, um, uh, uh, enough defense to allow us to win basketball games. And in order to do that, we had to have some very good very good defenders, and we had that as well. My job was to score. All of everybody on the team knew that we all had a job. My job was to score, and that's what I did. And what do you have to say? I I read back and uh, read an article in an interview that Doug gave in the '80s, and he was talking. You know, the sentiment about you guys is that you're a great offensive team, but just as good as you are on offense you're bad on defense. And he said that that was like, you know, a load of crap because defense is measured 
you know, in uh, offense or defensive rating and offensive rating, but at the pace you guys are playing at, obviously you're going to give up more points. Do you believe that, you know, what do you have to say to that sentiment that you guys weren't, weren't a good defensive team? I agree with Doug. We were, we were, we, we hear, we heard people say, you know, they're not good defenders. Well, if we're not good defenders, how do we win basketball games? How do we lead the league and score in uh and defensive steals, uh, how do we lead one of the top uh, leaders in, in shot blocking? You know, we had all the components of good defense. And like I said earlier, it, it came from the players, the individual players that we had that were good defenders, uh, like T.R. Dunn, Fat Lever, Calvin Nett, Wayne Cooper. Mm-hmm. And I considered myself a pretty decent defender. You know, when, when a guy posted me up, you know, I had a way to – you know, to get around and make steals. If you look at the statistics other than scoring, you know, we were one of the leaders in those stats as well. We always had somebody that was, you know, two or three guys were among the leaders in steals. We always had a guy that was one of the shot block, shot block leaders like Wayne Cooper and uh, every now and then uh, uh, Blair Rasmussen. So we had people that, that did those things. So then getting into the season at hand, 1984-85, something big happens in the offseason heading into this year. Uh, Kiki Vandeweghe, who was another prolific scorer, I think he averaged like 30 points a game in 83-84. He gets traded uh, leading up to this season for Wayne Cooper, T.R. Dunn, and Fat Lever. Um, Do you remember what, like, how that went down and just what you were feeling? I mean, it's one of the best scorers in the league that now uh, is gone. So what, what was that all like? And why do you think the front office made that move? Well, obviously they made the defense because made that move because they got three good players for a very good player. Mm-hmm. And those three players were very instrumental in contributing to our success the next uh, eight, nine years. Wayne Cooper was one of the leaders in shot blocking. Uh, Cal- Calvin Nett was one of the toughest defenders that you could find and a scorer. And Fat Lever was just, a, you know, the beginning of the triple-double guy. After uh, Oscar Robinson, Fat Lever was one of those guys that you could expect a triple-double every night, if not every other night. So uh, that was that was an easy one for Pete Babcock to make. Kiki, good friend, good scorer, not a great defender. We got three good defenders for one great offensive player. And it worked. I mean, you guys win 14 more games at this season at hand. So just to get in a little bit to sort of the rest of the roster, something we do on the show is I'm going to name you the player. And I want you to just say like the first word or phrase or story that comes to mind. So just going down the roster, let's start with Fat Lever, your point guard. One of the best ever. You know, he uh, he was a defender. He was a rebounder. I mean, I think he led the team in rebounding a year or two. Uh, he was a great passer. He was nonstop on the floor. Perfect, perfect point guard for the offense that we played because he would cut hard. He didn't look to score all the time, but could score and a great defender. He did a great job on a lot of the opposition point guards. Mm. Fat is a, it's a sort of a marvel to go back at his stat page yeah. and look at what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, and then Dan Issel, this was his, his last year in the league. Well, Dan, Dan gave us, Dan was like the beginning of that big that could shoot from the outside. Yep. 
and score threes and was a was a was a threat uh, outside as well as inside. I can remember him, you know, getting Kareem on the outside, giving him a pump fake and driving to the basket on him. And if Kareem didn't come out, he would shoot the jump shot, and Dan would make the jump shot. So he was a, a load for you know the opposition. A complete legend, to to say the least. Um, and then Calvin Nat, twenty three points per game this year. Calvin Nat was just brutal. You know, he was, uh, you know, he was a physical specimen. We used to call him the bull because he was like, you know, a bull in a china closet. He he goes berserk and tears everything up. But he was controlled. He, you know, we he always played the toughest, the toughest uh, forward, uh, the toughest. Uh, perimeter guy, and usually it was a forward back then when I played because the three position every night was just you know one of the best. You know, you look at the uh, the top fifty, you look at all the famous. A lot of them came from that that era, and a lot of them came from that position. And Calvin Nat was the one that guarded them. Uh, I ended up playing like a you know a bigger guy, but I, I didn't mind him playing uh, this, the the tough guy. Well, that actually leads into the next question. So I was going to say, I mean, you go back to the mid 80s in the small forward position yourself at the top of the list, but it's Larry Bird, it's Julius Irving, it's Dominique, Adrian Dantley, the list can sort of go on. Um, And I know that, you know, you were never a guy that loved and, and wanted the spotlight. But back in that time, you know, you're putting up pretty much 28, 30 a game for almost a decade, but there isn't the same spotlight or attention that's on you versus uh, a Dr. J or a Larry Bird. Did that ever bother you? It didn't bother me uh, during that time, but later on, because I felt like, uh, you know, for the work that I put in, I didn't get the credit. You know, when they named the the first top 50, you know, I was uh, just a little disappointed because I felt, you know, if I had led led the decade and scoring, why wouldn't there not be a position for me on the greatest? So I, but I got over that because that very same year I got elected to the Hall of Fame. Uh, it bothered me a little, but not until after my career. Uh, I, I, I thought I had a great career and, and I'm happy with it. Mm. Only thing missing was a championship. Yes. Um... Well, we'll get into sort of the the unfolding of that later. And just to stick on sort of around the league, for you personally, who were the guys that you looked forward to matching up against the most? Matching up against, uh, playing against, I'll I, I tell you the people that I didn't enjoy playing against. Okay, I like that. I didn't, I didn't like playing against people like Dennis Rodman. Okay. Uh, Mark Ivoroni. Uh, John John Johnson, Seattle, or Rodney McCray. These were the guys that they would put on me, the top defenders during that era. And, you know, it was a lot more work when I had to play against them. My job was to move on the floor, always moving, you know, getting opportunities that, you know, a guy is too tired to guard. And when I uh, had to play against a guy like Dennis Rodman, he, I could not run him. I couldn't get away from him. So you know, he played the best defense on me because there, there was no way to get away from him. And he was a good shot blocker, a good defender, and, you know, he would keep you off the glass. So uh, a defender like that was more difficult for me. 
But a guy like uh, uh, Rodney McRae, I would, I would, I would work those guys. And it, you know, a lot of teams like putting a taller guy on me because they said, well, if he's broken up, maybe a taller guy can block a shot. But I had worked on my shot well enough to keep a, you know, keep that from happening often. But the other thing was that I was very much into off rhythm shooting. Yep. You know, shooting where the guy is still playing defense and I'm already up in my offensive offensive shot. Uh, that way I could get a lot of shots off. I think I, I read that somebody described your game as like an, an off-balance grace. You don't <laughs> think of graceful as being off-balance, but that's what it was. Well, I, I learned I learned that from a guy by the name of Bob Dandridge, who was my mentor. That's who they, that's who they compared year you to. The yep. And, and uh, you know, who was going into the Hall of Fame this year. It should have been in the Hall of Fame, but – he was a guy that I, when I first got to Milwaukee, I sat on the bench and I watched him. And he, I could, nights, there were nights that he would have Julius Irving guarding him, uh, George McGinnis, he would give him numbers. And then on the other end, he would lock him up. He was a great defender as well. So I learned from one of the greatest small forwards that I, I feel ever. And that was like an offbeat offensive pattern. Was there ever anything in your mind or people out there saying that you should shoot threes? Not back then. It wasn't a shot that people were, you know, used to seeing a lot. Uh, it only, it's only in the last decade that the three-point shot became, like, as important as it is today. Uh, when I was playing, we had specialists, uh, Michael Adams, uh, Mike Evans, mm -hmm. uh, they were the specialists that shot the threes, and you know my game was an, it was an inside game, hmm. mid range. Yeah, complete the mid the mid range master. There's actually an Instagram page out there called Mid Range Twos, and you are the profile picture for that. So we 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 got to send you that. Um, okay. So then, getting into the season, you guys win 52 games. Um, it's a 14 win improvement. Talk about just like what the energy is like in the locker room with the team that year, uh, sort of climbing that ladder and making that leap from, you know, not a good team to now you're, you know, a 50 win team, you win your division. Well, if I can co remember correctly, that year we had our training camp at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, mm -hmm. and it was a special, a special training camp. Everybody came in in shape. Uh, everybody had been there a while and we were, you know, we had had a, a good year the year before. So we were, we were ready. I mean, we had, we were all together and, you know, and I felt like we had leaders that were leading, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the pressure put on me to be the leader because I was the leading scorer. We had other guys that led. And we were a team. We did things together. We went on the road. We had groups of guys that would go hang out together. We'd go to the movies. Uh, we'd go have dinner. And that's something that I think was very important. We were to as together as we were, and we cared about each other. What was life on the road like in the 80s? I mean, I, I don't know. I, like, you know, you hear about the days in the ABA and, you know, you're taking buses. I don't think it was like that, but... It probably wasn't like it is now where oh, no. 
where the teams are flying private and and they're yeah. you know the Ritz Carlton. What was life on the on the road back then like? Well, the first part of my career, you know, first couple of years, you know, NBA was you could you would play to play five five games in seven days. So you had back to back to back. And I guess through the players association, they kind of eliminated that, that style, but we still had back to back day or two off then back to back. So we played a lot of games and the most difficult part of that was having to get up in one city after a game at five in the morning to catch a seven o'clock flight and get to the next city and having to play that night. That's you know, that was a lot of wear and tear. And the other thing was uh, flying on airplanes back then. People would smoke cigarettes. They could smoke in first class. They could smoke in the plane. So we had to uh, had to deal with that. Then you get to another city. They didn't have the they didn't have the first class meals, and mm. you know they didn't have uh, uh, people giving you scouting reports like they do now. So it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of stress on the body as well as the mind. Was there ever private planes? Never. Was that just the Denver thing because it was a small market? Like, did the Celtics and the Lakers have them, or was that just the whole league? Yeah, that was the whole league. Nobody had a private plane. Everybody had to ride, and uh, I mean, we got to ride first class. Mm-hmm. But everybody couldn't get in first class because you know usually about ten seats, so rookies had to sit in the back. You know, went on seniority. So you you might be in the back dealing with whatever, no leg room and being cramped. Not like it is now. So no. then, so 52 wins, uh, you guys go into the playoffs and the first round is against Adrian Dantley. Uh, another guy, mid-range assassin, uh, one of the best scorers ever. Can you sort of try and educate the people a little bit about the greatness of Adrian Dantley? Yes, Adrian Dantley was a, he was only six four, six five, small forward, had a big butt, very strong lower body, uh, very talented. He, you know, he he had a uh, he had a habit of just massaging the ball, rubbing it when he's at the free throw line, like he was in love with it. But his game was, you know, he could get to the outside and, and make a jump shot. He was a good shooter, but his game was mainly driving to the basket and getting a, a mid-range shot or posting up and working inside. He and Mark Aguirre, mm-hmm. you know, two of the best small forwards in that era, were very similar in that they had the big lower body, they had the very strong lower body that helped them make post-ups inside, but they were very good at shooting it from the outside as well. So you had to, you had to get up on them. I apologize. I actually got the order mixed up. Jazz was the second round, but you beat them in five. The first round was actually the Spurs and and George Gervin. Um, the Nuggets and the Spurs are both ABA originating teams. Uh, the Spurs, like you guys, also like to score a lot of points. Um, we talked a little bit about you know this before the recording, but was there like uh, you know I know you didn't play in the ABA, but you must have been familiar and had a lot of friends that played there. Could you feel sort of the ABA mentality a little bit with your team and maybe the Spurs, especially with Gervin, a guy that was an ABA star, and your coach Doug Mo, who had spent a lot of time in that league? Not really. I didn't. I didn't really watch the ABA when I was growing up. I was more NBA because the only games they were televised would be 
you know, the Celtics in the 76ers when Russell and Wilt were playing against each other. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't as familiar with the ABA. I knew that they did a lot of scoring and they had a striped ball and they had very colorful uniforms. But uh, playing against playing against uh, though playing against the Spurs, we knew we always knew it was going to be a high scoring game. And those guys, they knew Doug's offense because Doug came from there and came to us. So they they were very similar. But we were different in that uh, our players were different. They had a lot of players that had already been established that were older. Mm-hmm. Uh, Silas, uh, Gervin, uh, Billy Paltz, Overden. But we were a lot quicker. And we had uh, Fat Lever. But then, then they had Mike Gale, who was, uh, who was tough back then. But we were we were the younger crew. We were the, the the new boys, and we knew it was going to be a tough game. But we we worked hard, and it was uh, I think one of the things that helped us win. We we made made our field more work, and we had you know like I said, we had two tough defenders at the point guard, at the point in the big guard where they got a lot of lot of scoring, and then Mike Mitchell and I kind of nullified each other. We were both scorers. Uh, so it was the point guards and the big guy in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Dan had a, an edge on artists because he could take him outside. But then we had Wayne Cooper with a shot blocker as well. So you take care of the, the Spurs and then the Jazz. And then who's waiting in the Western Conference Finals but Magic Johnson and Kareem. Yes. I yes. think today I, I've talked to a few people. And, like, when you look back at the 80s, it's, it's unfortunate. But it's like it's the Celtics and the Lakers – and that's it. I mean, they just completely dominated that decade from a championships perspective. I read that I think it was two years after this, you guys played the Lakers in the first round, I think 86, 87. And Doug Moe was basically like to the press, like, we're not going to win. Like, this is, you know, we're not going to beat him. And I don't think Pat Riley really liked that. But um, I mean, this year was different. You guys, you know, were a lot better, I think, than you were two years yeah. from then. But what is just like the mindset and the conversation like when, you know, you win those two playoff series and you're rewarded with Magic and Kareem? We we felt like that year was our year. Mm. You know, we felt like we could beat anybody. And I, I know during the regular season, we might have split the, you know, the wins with the Lakers. It may have been 2-2. I'm not sure. But we knew we could beat them. And we knew that they were – a little afraid of us, a leery of us because of the way we played. Uh, they were they were a fast-paced offense, but we were the, the creme de la creme when it came to fast-paced offense. And, you know, them having to work against us, I, I don't think they they looked forward to it, but it's playoff basketball that you were getting ready and prepared for it. We go to the Lakers and – like expected, they were, you know, everybody was feeling each other out. Like two heavyweight boxers throwing punches in the first round, mm-hmm. trying to feel each other out. And they got the best of us. They kind of just whipped us good. I don't know what the score was, but the next game, we knew what we had to do. And the next game, we beat them in the form. They did not expect that. You they beat expected them, you beat to them by win. 22. And by 22 in the form. And then we go back to Denver. 
and you know it's like the two big uh, heavyweights in the in, in the in the ring again. And unfortunately, in that first half, as I was uh, rebounding the ball, uh, trying to rebound the ball, and Kareem came down with his elbows out like this, and he gets the ball and he does this, and I put my hands up, and he catches me right in the right in the uh, joint of my thumb, and broke the joint. Uh, and you know, I go back down the court. I'm like, hey, this doesn't feel right. You know, my, my finger was dangling, and then I come back up the court. I, they throw the ball to me, and I try to dribble, but it, it didn't work. So I had to get a timeout, and they, they determined it was broken. And that was the series for us because, uh, like I said, each one of my players, of our players, knew their role, and we had a role to play. My role was to give 20-plus points a night as a, as a teammate to make my team successful. And that's uh, you know, that's that's a big thing to not have. And then Fat Lever got injured as well, as well as Calvin Nat. So uh, it was tough for us. Injuries always can derail playoffs. Ever I mean it's so rare that a team makes it through an entire postseason without an injury. And often those are the teams that end up winning because they they get lucky. That's um, right. Uh, something that I that I always think is interesting is that Kareem, you know, he's 37 years old, but he's still, you know, doing his thing and dominating. Um, how was just like Kareem sort of like as the old guy, uh, you think of like a LeBron now sort of able to use his strength and his IQ to remain you know, at the top of the game. But Kareem was another guy that sort of had a similar career arc and just like his longevity was crazy. Um, what made Kareem at 37 still so effective? Well, to me, Kareem is the greatest of all time, mm. uh, he and Bill Russell. And I think what made Kareem so great was his determination on the floor and his ability and his will to win. Uh, I think also that Kareem took pride in taking care of his body and being ready to play. And the number one thing that made him Kareem was that unstoppable jump hook that he had. His, his hook was, it's not a, I haven't seen that shot anywhere in the league in the past 10, 15 years. And he was so consistent with that. Uh, and just his presence and his ability to just get up and down the floor just made him, you know, to me, the greatest. And then his, his point guard is running mate, Magic Johnson, uh, more of the superstar celebrity persona what, what 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 were your thoughts on the outside as you observed sort of magic come up and and solidify himself as just like a player that uh hadn't really been seen uh, in the nba yeah he was a, he was an unusual player being six nine ball handler could see the floor uh dictated his offense and could play probably every position on the floor and then he had this 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 uh, personality that was just exuberant, and you know he he got his players, he loved his players, he got them all into the game. Another guy on that team that was tough was James Worthy. Big game That's games. the guy that you know he's the unspoken guy that unspoken talent that you know people don't realize was so important because he was six six nine six ten. And he could move, he could run, he run the floor, he could handle, he shoot. 
So that's the guy that I had to guard, and it was tough. He was, you know, he was tough every night. So, uh, have, but having Magic there made all the difference in the world. You know, he was the big six nine guard. He had little small guards who were normally point guards like Byron Scott, and Norm Nix. They were the guys that were the shooting guys. But he was, uh, he was just a talent. Uh, LeBron, similar talent to Magic. Magic was just a little different, though. You know, we remember the series when Magic Green got hurt and Magic yeah. had to play the center position. His you know, that, year. yeah, they won the championship that year. You know, so uh, we were playing against one of the best ever squads in the NBA history, and we were on the verge of upsetting them, but it wasn't meant to be. That's how it works. You you go back in NBA history and, you know, there's the the Bulls in the 90s, the Lakers, the Celtics in the 80s, and all those teams like your Nuggets teams, uh, there's there's many more of them. But um, and people view them as like a failure because they didn't win a championship. But then you go back and you realize not that many groups won championships, but those are not the the only groups in NBA history that deserve to be talked about. There's there's a number so that season sort of concludes and um, you guys lose in five and you don't go back to the conference finals in, you know, the rest of your time in Denver. Um, I guess just like why, what, what stopped you guys from being able to be in that position again? I, I think the next year we probably had injuries. Injuries was the thing that, that bothered us the most. You know, Wayne Cooper, Calvin Nat, uh, even Fat Lieber. I was pretty much injury-free for most of the time, other than a broken thumb or a sprained ankle here. And, you know, just being able to, to retool. You know, you have to have people that are able to come in and give you something every year. You know, you've got a great supporting cast out on the floor, but you've got to have a great supporting cast on the bench as well. You know, you've got to have be able to, to bring in people that are going to be able to uh, keep you in the game when you take one of your star players out. And we weren't able to do that uh, the years following. If you, I think we got, you know, we, we ended up getting people like James Ray, mm -hmm. uh, Rob Williams, uh, Willie White, Howard Carter. None of those guys contributed. You know, they weren't able to contribute in a, in, a, in a big way to keep us at that level. If you could sort of play the GM role, the front office role, it doesn't have, it could be a specific player, but what are the, the types of players, whether it be, you know, a shooting guard or a, 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 a defensive center, what type of players do you think uh, would have been helpful and could have sort of gotten you guys over that hump? Well, we thought we thought a point guard would be uh, a guy that would be helpful. I'm sure that's why they drafted, you know, and most of those years they were guards. Mm -hmm. uh, but also if there were legitimate big men. We ended up getting Blair Rasmussen, who helped us a lot. Uh, but, you know, we probably lost out on a couple of guys that we probably could have gotten at the power forward. You know, James Ray, you know, James Ray was a great player. Unfortunately, he got injured. And that seemed to be the story with most of the guys we drafted. They ended up getting injured. And, you know, we had nothing to show for it. Their careers lasted maybe two or three years. 
uh, after drafting them in you know in strong spots. So uh, we we didn't have really good draft seasons, and we didn't trade. If I can recall well, we didn't trade to get players that were going to make us better either. I know we traded for Walter Davis at the end of his career, and he was able to give us a burst, but, you know, we were older then. We talked to a lot of players who sort of have these seasons where on the, they're on the cusp of whether it's, you know, making the finals or winning a championship. Uh, a lot of their sentiments is like you, you come up, you come so close and then you lose and you sort of just in your mind think, okay, we'll, we'll be back next year. But as we've talked about, there's injuries, there's, uh, there's, personnel changes um did did you do you sort of share any of that thinking you know back then did you have similar feelings uh well i don't that's a long time ago i I can't remember that far back other than uh a few things you know i always enjoyed playing and felt like my job was to play I, i felt like you know, the people in the front office, it was their job to be able to put the people on the floor that we needed. And, you know, I guess they tried. You know, they did what they felt they needed to do, but it didn't happen. I I think nowadays they're more scientific in how they, you know, find people to fill spots. They know what they want. It's more tech-savvy now Mm -hmm. uh, in the front office. And, and I don't always agree with, uh, you know, the statistical part of it. But when it comes to finding players, you find a good player, but you also have to be able to measure, you know, the heart. And that's not, I don't think there's a, uh, I don't think there's a test out there for it. They haven't figured out the, uh, the analytics guys in the back room haven't figured yeah, out a metric they, for heart. Yeah, they, don't, they haven't figured that out yet. So just sort of wrapping up, I, I know you watched the game, you know, today we talked a little bit about it. Um, is there anybody that you watch or you've watched since you retired that reminds you a little bit of yourself? Yeah, there are probably pieces of me in, in some players. Uh, that's the beauty of basketball. There are no two players that are the same. Other than, you know, I felt watching Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, they had similar games and they had similar mentalities on the floor. Uh, but even then, even with those two, the game was different. It, but it's for, I mean, I've, I've not seen anybody replicate my jump shot. I haven't seen anybody replicate Kareem's sky hook. Mm-mm. You know, it's a, uh, Basketball is just a funny game. It, you know, there's no two individuals. They may have similar parts of it. I think maybe, uh, you know, and I've, I've, I've been watching Chris Middleton, who's also from South Carolina. He's got a mentality maybe that's similar to mine as far as, okay, let me go to the next thing. That didn't work. Uh, let me do my job. Uh, and Kevin Durant, for what he does on the floor. He's a scorer. He can score. You know, he's just a guy that we know is going to go in the basket. And, you know, wherever he's on the floor. My game, not similar to his, but maybe in a sense that I knew 
I could score and that my shot made that possible. So I, I worked on that shot, uh, you know, making it so that, you know, it was consistent. And it, even though it seemed like a, an impossible shot to other people, it was just very natural to me. Well, you ever get your wingspan measured? Because your release point. Never. Maybe, you know, back then when I was when I was coming out, they didn't do all that stuff. They just because that's they didn't have all the statistics and the wingspan wingspan measurements and foot size, all that. It just go. Oh, we drafted you. We need you to come play for us. Come play basketball. That's what you did. And you got a flight tomorrow at five a.m. Yeah, you got a flight tomorrow at five a.m. and then you play a game and then you got to get up at four the next morning and go play another game. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people today love to sort of talk down on on the competition in the 80s, but I think they don't realize how good the players now have it. Uh, yeah, they don't realize that and they haven't they don't really know the game. They haven't studied the game that the decade of the 80s produced some of the best basketball players that ever came into the NBA. And I I sat down and marveled at, you know, the guys that I played against. I mean, I, I mean, there were nights that, I mean, I'd be playing Larry Bird. Uh, and then the next night I have to go guard Dominique Wilkins, two totally different players. And then following that up, I'm going to have to come and guard Mark McGuire, who, you know, who's a more of a big booty post-up guy. So, and then, the, and then the next night I might have to go and play James Worthy. You know, it was, uh, it was just a, it was a beautiful game. and. There was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, lot of talent in the decade of the eighties. So it certainly was, and we're very grateful to have one of the top talents of the decade, the leading scorer. Um, this was an amazing conversation, Alex. Thank you for joining us, um, and be well, my friend. Okay, thank you very much. Well, that was a pleasure being able to talk with the Hall of Famer, the leading scorer of the 80s, Alex English. I really enjoyed that one. I hope you guys appreciate and, and like learning about, you know, teams from the 80s, stuff that isn't you know, from the 2000s. I think it's important. And uh, if you like it, shoot me a DM on Instagram. Let us know if you're if you're liking it. Any other thoughts? Uh, remember to review and rate the podcast if you can, if you're enjoying it. You can find more Forgotten Seasons on Instagram and Twitter, and be sure to visit truthplusmedia.com for more stories from NBA history. And until next time, we will be back with more Forgotten Seasons very soon. Thanks, guys.